make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing, it seemed, in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast with your hosts, Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin. Hello, everybody. I'm Stuart Valco, producer of the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast. And today I'm turning the tables. I am here to interview the co-host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast and founder of the Entertainment Business School, Kaya Alexander. Hi, Kaya. Hey, how are you doing, Stuart? Thanks for having me on my own show. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, It was easy to book you. That was that was a, a great benefit. Kaya Alexander is the CEO and founder of the Entertainment Business League and the Entertainment Business School. And that's for above the line creatives to learn business. She's also a producer, a writer, and she began her industry career as a development executive on the feature films Just Friends, Peaceful Warrior, and The Good Night. She was mentored by comedian Gary Shandling and novelist Tom Robbins. She's an award-winning author for her historical novel, Written in the Ashes, about the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria, which was published by HarperCollins. Kaya is a passionate advocate for gender and racial parity in the business, and she created a free virtual group for women writers called Writing with Kaya that has members in 30 countries and keeps growing. As an animal lover, mom, a native of Southern California, There's always surfboards on Kaya's car and fur on her sleeves. She's proud to be the BQ in LGBTQ. Kaya, it's great to interview you. Uh, I am honored to be the one to do it for your own podcast. So let's just start by letting people know about how you got here. What's your background? What got you involved in the entertainment business? Well, you know, it's funny because I, I grew up in L.A., but I never wanted to be in the entertainment business. I, I joke sometimes that my business card should say everything but acting because <laughs> everyone I saw in the business um, who looked like me, they were all actresses. And it seemed like I was just there was a period of about 15 years where I was constantly approached. Oh, do you act? Would you be in this commercial or whatever? And I was always just sort of horrified by the idea. Um, and I didn't know that I had the option of any other elements of a career entertainment, uh, you know, career, because all like I was running a bookshop in Malibu called Malibu Books and Company when I was like 20. 
there were tons of TV writers who came in the door, like for Beverly Hills 90210. Screenwriter Eric Roth was one of our regular clientele, but I never saw a writer who looked like me, you know, so that without that, if, you know, you can see it, you can be it element. I, I was like, how would I do this? And so I, no, novel writing and my admiration for Anne Rice and the work of Tom Robbins was where I started, you know, writing and never really thought about a career in entertainment until I moved back to LA in my late twenties from living in Northern California. And, um, as I was talent scouted by one of my friends, uh, Bill Johnson, who was running Inferno, well, which was once called Inferno Distribution, then became Inferno Entertainment, and he needed a development executive. I didn't even know what the job was. All I knew was I was going to be paid to read, which sounded like absolute heaven on earth. I was like, sign me up. I can't wait. And the very first script that I ever gave notes on was a little movie with New Line called Just Friends that starred Ryan Reynolds, and that began my career. Well, we have that in common. We both became development executives at different yeah, you worked for you worked for our friend Mike Metavoy, who That's is just right. legend. And That's the right. you know, original and in, in O'Brien and was at UA and, and he's he's legend. We love him. And I, I and I was kind of surprised to figure out that my job was mostly reading scripts. <laughs> really? That's what <laughs> did you that's think what it you was do? sexier than that? <laughs> I'm doing coverage. I did you that had for a pretty uh, sexy job though. I mean, you've had lunch with uh, Barbara Streisand. Right, so <laughs> I, I calculated once that I've read over a thousand scripts. Oh, easily. I mean, same. Yeah. Like I was falling asleep in the scripts that I was reading and waking up to, and you know, it's it's yeah, it's a lot of paper. Well, it you was. Know, it, it's now, a so skill, it's really, right? I mean, to, to to be able to read scripts and and interpret them and see them as a film is a, is kind of a learned skill, wouldn't you say? Yes, and of course, there are so many people's hands who the vision passes through in order to bring it to be being fully realized on the screen. So even if you have a truly perfect script, it's up to the director and the rest of the cast to not screw it up. And sometimes it does get screwed up. Sometimes it gets screwed up in production or editing. And then a truly perfect script becomes something that, you know, isn't even that marketable. We had that happen, uh, you know, for sure when I was working for Inferno. And, and it's very disappointing when that happens. But you just keep going. You know, you just keep looking for great projects that you believe in, that you're passionate about and that you want to see brought to screen. Well, that was a great background. Uh, as, so you were as, as a buyer, you learned what sold. So that was a great background for what you're doing now. So how does that inform what you've now created as the entertainment business school? Wow. I mean, it's a great, it's a really great question. As you talked about in my bio, I really care about women. It, this is an industry wherein we still don't have gender parity. And there's a lot of opportunity because now the buyers want strong women leads. They want female driven stories because there's a massive audience of underserved women who want to see films. And for a long time, they were really ignored as like, especially with the feature production companies focusing on the teen audience, you know, always. And now they're like, Hey, there's all these women who want to watch movies. Oh, that's awesome. Let's create content for them. So, um, I, in a, gosh, I was going back through the pandemic, like with my sense of time, I, from my deepest heart decided I wanted to give back. We had lost Gary Shandling and, um, that just crushed me. It crushed me for years. I missed him so much. And he had really, um, like Kevin Nealon said about him, he changed my fabric. He changed the way I think 
change the way I see the world. And Gary was so generous and he would joke, he was debilitatingly generous and um, he loved to give back. And it, around 2020, I was sort of looking at my career and what I had done and thinking, well, I mean, I have a few accomplishments. None of them are really that great, but like, maybe I could give back. Maybe there would be some young women writers who might be interested in me mentoring them. And I thought, oh, I'll take three. Maybe I could even find three. I wasn't even sure. I even thought about maybe mentoring at my local high school, but then the pandemic hit. So I ended up just putting out a tweet and saying, you know, I'd like to mentor a couple of young women writers. I've been a buyer. I've been a buyer. And, uh, you know, I thought maybe I'll get 10 applicants. That'd be nice. And then I'll find a couple that I'd like to nurture and support. And um, I had 250 applications and, and applicants to that mentorship. And I was, I read every single one uh, with such an open heart. It took me like over a month to read all those applications. And I was so touched by the stories of these women um, who just don't have any support at every level in the industry. Some were already working in the industry. Some, of course, you know, were just graduating from college or with their MFAs. And then there were a lot of mid-career writers who were like, I don't have the support I need either. And I was realizing, oh, we need to make sure that the women get supported in the industry on the business side. Because there are so many wonderful programs for the craft side, whether you're talking um, Sundance or Roadmap Writers, there, there are wonderful programs to support and fellowships as well, if you can you know, get in. Um, and that's a, those are places to develop your craft. But what I was starting to see was that there was a complete opaqueness about the business side. And not just for women, for everybody, for all creatives. How can you understand how this industry works. It's like a castle with a moat and a drawbridge. And if you're outside, you're really outside. And if you can actually get through, you know, to being on the inside, even then, like there's, there's not a lot that's illuminated. You might be like, how do I get to the throne room where the buyers are? You may be like, well, I think it could be this, it could be that, but it's not a clear path. And that's really frustrating to serious creatives who want to be pros. They're like, wait a minute, what's my path in? And then once you're in, what's my path to, to staying in and really building my career? And I am a strategist. I love business. I love strategy. And I also love writing. So I kind of speak both languages. I'm fluent in both uh, the creative side and also the business side. So I've become like this translator. And that was the point of the entertainment business school was to say, let's, let's bring you, let's illuminate. I say it's, uh, you know, above the line, it's business for above the line creatives illuminated. Let's illuminate for you what you don't know about the business side and the business side is fun. And once you really learn it and anyone can learn business, then you really start to get to the levels of your career that you want to get to. You uh, have a particular focus on these underserved people and particularly women and LGBTQ people. Or did you find that there's more barriers? And BIPOC and let's not forget Black Lives Matter. There are so many people who have had, you know, marginalized people who have had their stories excluded from being shared on screen. And the climate is finally changing. I think we're starting to see a lot more racial parity. I don't know that we're there yet. Um, it, a lot of it comes down to the executives as well and their own biases coming into play where they say, I don't connect to this material. 
but maybe it's a racial bias that they haven't addressed, or maybe it's a gender bias that they haven't addressed. You know, I don't connect to this material because these people don't look like me or they don't come from my culture. So Black Lives Matter has really helped to, in the best possible way, disrupt the industry. And what we know for sure from movies like that Black Panther is there's this huge underserved audience out there and they're so excited to see themselves represented on screen. I really love the um, cable channel stars. They have a campaign right now, hashtag take the lead. And they're like, we're out in front with gender parity. We are hiring women. We are hiring women within our own organization and company. And we're also showing women's stories on screen that have maybe never been seen before. And I, I love that. So I'm here for it. I'm here to support it. I really care about that because it's healing. I mean, at the deepest level, when, if you've never seen yourself, I don't, let me speak to my own personal experience. I'm by. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And you just almost never see bi characters. They're, the bi erasure is really, really common. And so when I see, like, I remember crying watching Supergirl and seeing, you know, the, the character of Alex Danvers come out and going, oh my God, like, this is, this is a piece of myself that I never knew, like, needed empathy or reflection that I've now seen on screen. And it's so deeply validating. It's healing. There are whole... Uh, groups of people, like even within my LGBTQ community, who I, you know, and I want to call out like showrunner Ryan Murphy for doing incredible programming and content for this community from his deep core about, you know, whether it's Halston or Pose, there's so much to explore within this community that's never been seen on screen. That's exciting. That breaks down barriers because um, if, you know, you are coming from a white cisgender hetero family that now can see a show like Pose and take you inside these characters' challenges and their struggles and you care about them, that's going to revolutionize the world. And, uh, you know, I, I believe in that. I believe in storytelling being one of the most healing and unifying tools that we have uh, to combat things like injustice and um you know, discrimination and racism and, you know, even, even things like war, because we get more unified, the more we know about others and the more we think we feel like, Oh my gosh, they're like me. That was really healing. When you first got started with this, you, uh, you used Twitter. I still do. My son complains like crazy. You do. So you still do, of course. And, uh, you made a lot of interesting discoveries, uh, on Twitter and how to use Twitter. And one of the things that, uh, stood out is you did a post about common mistakes writers what writers make uh, especially um, young writers or your writers starting out tell us a little bit more about that because you got a tremendous reaction like an off the hook reaction to yeah, that like post 500,000 impressions or something really big um you know the biggest mistake i see is that it is a mistake i call lone wolfing 
And this idea is not exclusive to women or even to writers, but it is this idea that I think that America, that the United States, you know, sort of spawns, if you will, because we're isolated in school and taught to believe that any collaboration is cheating. And then you, you know, invest yourself in your own work. And if you're creative, there's this sense of responsibility about like, my work has to be good enough. And I have to be, you know, reach to reach the highest levels of, you know, being a pro being paid for my own creative work. um, And the power of that, there's this sense of like, oh, it's going to be all me. But really, if you even look at like, some of the award ceremonies, the Emmys, the Oscars, when those artists who win get up on stage and they're always ushered off stage by the music, right? Um, you know how many people they're thanking who are part of their team? They're thanking their publicists, their attorney, their producers, their co-producers, their mothers, their therapists. I mean, everybody. And I call that the wolf pack. And when I do these interviews for this podcast, I often will inter- interview um, somebody and say, you know, who's in your wolf pack? And the pros always answer that question just off the tip of their tongue. They're like, oh, you know, it's my spouse and it's my co-producing team and it's my favorite director and it's, you know, my agent who I've worked with forever. So when you have a wolf pack and you have that idea inseminated in your consciousness, oh, I need a wolf pack. I'll never succeed alone. Then you start to succeed. So that thread, that was kind of the, the basis of it is stop thinking it's all on you because this is a collaborative team sport, the entertainment business. And, um, you know, our friend Scott Gardner has this hilarious quote that I love where he says, it's better to have too many babies than a spoiled baby. And I love that. It's so funny because it's really true. Like you might get really married to your one project your one favorite screenplay. This is the one that'll get me through, you know, this one movie that I've been working on forever. And I am totally guilty of this as well. Spending five years, 10 years on a project, you know, this is the one that I got to nurture forever and not just being a little more agnostic and developing a bunch of different things. And I think that that really helps because then people start to see who you are, see your brand. My brand is adventuring women. So everything I'm writing or producing is that. And you need enough to be able to to share and say that people can identify you. So those are just some of the mistakes that I've seen, but some like really big ones. Um, and the, the nugget of that, of what I've just said is really also about branding. Um, and a mistake is going, well, I, I want to try all these different things and um, not really identifying yourself to the industry. The industry people are so busy. They do not have time to be like, wait, you write horror and children's animation? What? Like that will just confuse people. So you want to pick a lane and you want to go, I'm going to be successful in this lane for the next 10, 20 years. This is what I do. This is who I am. You know, for me, it's like adventuring women. This is what I do. This is who I am. Whole rest of my life. This is, these are the stories I want to tell. And that means People actually email me. They know what I'm looking for as a producer. They know what I'm writing. And there's that sense of of identity. And so that piece of it is really important too. As a creative, you have got to convey your DNA very quickly to your own team. And then ultimately that translates to the buyers, which translates to the audience. If you look at somebody like Judd Apatow, who is also mentored by Gary Shandling, you always know that it's going to be a geek gets the girl type of movie that is hilarious. You're going to laugh. 
You're going to have fun, you know, and, and, um, and enjoy that ride. That's been his mission. That's been his brand. We know who he is. He's reliable. He delivers. And that's where the success really comes from. It's remarkable that you understood a way of teaching those skills too. It's, I never thought that was teachable. Like the, the, totally the ability to get a wolf pack <laughs> and, and build a team like that. Um, yeah, I always thought, oh, that's just people that have that talent and skill built in. But you can learn that. You know, you can do it. And, and really, you have to. If you don't know these things, you're going to have a sort of, it's like you envision, you know, my, my, my career is going to be this gushing waterfall. But if you don't master these different skills that I teach, you're going to have like a trickle instead of the waterfall. And you're going to be like, where's, where's all the success I know is possible. And then you'll just think, Oh, I'm not lucky or whatever script you start to tell yourself inside. But really it's these particular skills that you have got to master in order to create the opportunity of the abundance of success that's possible for you that you're dreaming of. Yeah. We discussed this before that talent and the, the, the quality of the work is only part of the equation. I mean, and that's also one of the mistakes, right? Is thinking, oh, if I'm just talented enough and I work hard enough at my art, then I'm infinitely employable. And really it's a people business. Mm -hmm. It's a sport. So if you don't master the people side, picking up the phone, making calls and knowing your email etiquette and being playing like a pro in that way, you can screw up your own deals because you're not doing the people handling correctly. And it's imperative you learn that. And I especially am leaning into saying that for any of our introverts in the audience who are listening, you gotta make friends. You gotta get out there and start making some friends because that's really what it's all about. I don't like the word networking. Um, It's finding your wolf pack, it's making friends. It's figuring out who you wanna have on your yacht when you go to can. (laughs) Another big part of it, of course, that you teach is is the pitching. You have to be able to, you know, connect with people in that way um, to sell your work because it's, you know, the agents don't do it for you. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I love teaching pitching. And there's a few different companies in the entertainment business that teach pitching. But as you know, Stuart, as an entrepreneur, pitching is a skill that you can use everywhere in life. So how can you quickly make a connection with somebody, communicate your story, and then really excite them to dive in with your, you know, your hook and your ask. And I teach this four-part formula that is made of animals. I call it the cat, dog, horse, animal formula. It's a great formula. It's really, really works well. I use it all the Um, time. I use it on the podcast, um, you know, constantly, because I'm always interviewing people who I've never spoken to before. So you get familiar with how to create a connection, set them at ease. And that's what you want to do even as a creative when you're pitching executives. You want to command the space to put everyone in the room at ease. And then they're going to really relax into what you have to share. Another remarkable thing I I just want to point out is that you can teach certain business skills like just knowing about the structures of deals and what's possible can make a tremendous difference. I, I know uh, a couple of weeks ago, you you just gave a tip to somebody and that day that translated into an enormous uh, bump for that writer, an enormous opportunity just because uh, you you told them uh, something that they knew to ask. They knew well, to ask been the writer that I was helping, she had a rep her manager wasn't uh, performing as well as she hoped, not getting the meetings that she hoped for. And she was just writing, writing, writing more and more shows, more and more pilots without getting the meetings she wanted. 
that's really common. I hear writers in my inbox all the time um, complaining that they, they're not getting the deal flow they hope from their rep. And I said, well, you know, why aren't you on Twitter reaching out to show showrunners? She's like, oh, hey, I don't know. I don't think you can do that. And I was like, oh, hell yeah, you can do that. So we talked through a strategy so she could start to reach out to her ultimate ideal showrunners. And she, within an hour, got a response from a showrunner who was excited to read her. So really, it's the hustle of always going after your own deals. I mean, the reality of this business is that your competition are celebrities and their production companies. So until you're as famous as Sean Penn or Demi Moore or Angelina Jolie, you are going to be hustling and rustling your own deals because until you hit that level of celebrity, the deal flow just is not coming to you the way that it does to them and they're your competition. So you have to just kind of stay at it and enjoy that part of it because it's a huge part of your job description. So in the celebrity realm, uh, you, you have some favorite shows that you watch a lot of shows. You're a fabulous, uh, analyst and critic of shows. I rely on you to, uh, recommend most of what I watch. What are some of the things that you're a fan of now? Wow. Now, you know, it's funny. I've been training the Netflix algorithm for like 10 years with what I like and don't like. So Netflix now has this cue for me that says like, historical romance, dramatic epics featuring strong female leads. <laughs> it totally knows me. I mean, I can, I can share some of my favorite shows over time. I loved out of Rio girls from Ipanema. Um, I actually loved out of Italy, uh, my brilliant friend, which was based on the Elena Ferrante novels. I mean, stunning, stunning filmmaking. Um, I'm really enjoying the Durrells right now, which the Durrells on Corfu, which is on Amazon about the Durrell family. Um, of course, the most famous of the author of the Alexand Alexandria Quartets. Alexandria is a city I've written about too um, by Lawrence Durrell. And I love everything out of the UK. I was a big Killing Eve fan, of course, Fleabag. Um, I love episodes. We had some howls uh, at episodes with Matt LeBlanc um, and some of our favorite actors. Um, and it goes all the way back for me to shows that were, you know, seminal. I loved Black Books, which had a couple seasons with comedian Dylan Moran. So, yeah, I love comedy and uh, beautiful locations. Probably my all-time favorite shows, Doc Martin. I bet our listeners have, like, never heard of any of these shows. <laughs> um, so I like leaning into, like, what's more popular, not just, like, my eclectic uh, tastes. I have... Um, I really enjoyed The White Lotus on HBO. You and I are watching Foundation right now, which has been a slow burn with some really significant payoff and pretty much the highest production value I've ever seen in my entire life. I love the morning show on Apple. And, you know, I, I cruise around. I try to I try to watch stuff um, that the that everybody's really connecting to. And I'm part of that screenwriting community on Twitter who's talking about shows that they're seeing and what they're excited by, what they've loved, um, what has moved them. And, and, you know, it's not all of it is stuff that I can watch. You know, I'm never going to be able to watch Succession. There's just shows that are not for me. And I, I'm comfortable with that. I was looking at my watch queue with one of the other guests I had. And I was like, it'll take me the rest of my life to even just watch what's in my watch queue right now. So yeah, I try to just own my, own my taste. And, you know, I love seeing, I love seeing women on screen. I, I was a young girl who grew up on Anna Green Gables. And Anne was the first time I saw a character who was feisty and bold and also wounded. And she was adventurous and she was smart. 
and she was ambitious. And, you know, her and Pippi Longstocking, two redhead girls, they were kind of all I really had growing up. You know, I loved movies like The Black Stallion. Um, I, I really loved, uh, you know, one of my favorite films of all time was The Bertolucci, um, which was so beautiful. The uh, the one set in um, Tunisia, which I'm blanking on, Sheltering Sky. Uh, Sheltering Sky is one of my favorite movies of all time. And you just have such beauty and such storytelling, um, you know, following the two journeys, right? If there's two protagonists in that movie and one of them dies halfway through. So you get these very juxtaposed worlds in that extraordinary, you know, adaptation of Paul Bull's novel. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a film nerd and I love beauty on screen and I love going places that I would never ordinarily see. I mean, I love all the nature documentaries on Disney too, the ones about the whales. I mean, oh my God, I am determined before I die to get to see the belugas in the Hudson Bay uh, in the St. Lawrence River in some of these incredible locations that they went to in the whales documentaries. And I'm just like, I, you know, we let, I want to spend the rest of my life watching whales. It's, a, it's an incredible thing. We could put cameras on anything now. Remember that show we were watching, which was like the spy in the pod or whatever, where they would like put a camera in the turtle or something, you know, fake turtle and put the camera in the middle of like the animals. And you get to see how they interacted with the camera and stuff. I love stuff like that. Your uh, eye for quality and your directorial eye and your writer's mind gives you a unique perspective to be a critical recommender of things and also you're able to then teach that to writers like what makes things commercially viable and what makes things directable you know because right. i just said before right i mean the, the the written part of it is only part of the process and then it goes through a lot of other hands and it can change on the fly you know writers can get married to their words but um, when you, you know, see how they start to come alive on screen, oftentimes you have to really lean into the talent that is bringing those characters to life. And that will change how um, the characters are conveyed. And those actors always have ideas, too. And it becomes a beautiful collaborative process when the actors are allowed to have those ideas and contribute their best to their characters. Then it gets really interesting. We've already mentioned a couple of trends that you're seeing in the industry, especially the um, emphasis on strong female-driven content and companies that are starting to really act upon uh, equity and inclusion. What are some other trends that you think are notable? Well, I mean, I think the episode that I did that I filmed recently with my entertainment attorney Philip Rosen is so worth listen, listening to um, for those of our listeners who haven't caught that one because. The entertainment attorneys, they sit in the hub of all the deals, all the deal flow, what's happening. And he was saying there's more buyers than ever. And as I talked to my writer friends, all the buyers want anything based on IP. So whenever you're able to get a shopping agreement on a novel to adapt it or option a book to adapt it, that excites the buyers. Oh, it's based on IP. Oh, that's great. They really love that. Um you know, and we're just seeing more more opportunity than ever for staffing, especially because there's more serious than ever. But we're also seeing the erosion of some of those deals because it's just a um, not the same type of market that it was in the '90s with those significant paychecks. There's an erosion uh, that has happened. So on the one hand, I mean, really, it's more imperative than ever that you build your career strategically. 
because it is also so expensive to live in Los Angeles or any of these major cities. You're living in New York, you're living in London, you're living in LA, and you're you're going to spend a fortune on rent. And you've got to make sure that you're being really strategic about, okay, if you're going to get into the Writers Guild, how are you going to afford to live there until you actually get like staffed or sell your work or get a rep? These things take years, years. So you've got to be really strategic about that. And, um, you know, it is like Scott Galloway, who we both read and, and follow Professor Galloway. He says and has stated something like really high, like 79% of the wealth in the country is held by, you know, married couples. Like the, the biggest success, the, the biggest opportunity you have for success is being married. Meaning like, you know, you're sharing the bills with another human being and it really helps if you are soloing through the world, through life, it's a lot more expensive. And then it's a lot harder to focus on your dreams our co-host Sylvia Franklin is um, looking at supporting writers uh, within the real estate market and has dreams and visions for how to make that happen. And I, I think we have to go more toward community. Yeah, there's generational divides too of people that are the, the as, as a prof G says the shareholder class, right? Which is yeah, the uh, wealth the gap is you know the wealth gap is greater greater than gap. ever. Which brings us to 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 what makes the the entertainment business school so worthwhile is you're keeping on top of these trends and you know who are some of the people that would benefit from this and what are they going to learn i mean that's a great question i teach above the line creatives about the business side so and some of the things that i cover like if and when you need to create your own production company how studios and streamers make buying decisions, how to brand yourself, like I talked about earlier, how to pitch, uh, like you had brought up. I love teaching networking. How do you make friends? How do you grow your wolf pack? Um, I also talk about how to build your audience and your fan base and harness them for you know future successes as you grow your brand and you can deliver content to that fan base. I do talk about the intricacies of creating deal flow, uh, how film distribution works, how it is changing rapidly. I've, I've talked a little bit about the way the pandemic has changed the industry and we're seeing that with the proliferation of streaming platforms. And I love teaching negotiation. Um, Gary Shandling was really big on reputation management. So I do an entire uh, week in the entertainment business school on managing your reputation. I see above the line creatives take to social media and share things they should never share on Twitter, on Instagram that are gonna make them not, they're gonna just not look like pros. And when you are living a public life like that, you have gotta be really buttoned up because you're building your reputation. So yeah, I talk about mentorship, film financing, budgets, uh, what is IP? How do you option it? How do you create it? And of course, to talk about the roles of like managers and agents and entertainment attorneys, publicists, producers, development execs. How do you need, you know, how do you work with these people? What do they need from you? What do you need from them? You know, it's the dream jobs are always these above the line jobs. They come with the biggest paychecks. They're the most exciting. You get to see your name in lights and um, you get to really author culture. That's a responsibility. That's exciting. That's something that you could share with anybody. And I think all of us who are you know, called to this industry in whatever capacity want to be able to share something deep inside of us with others. It may even just be with a family member. I know plenty of people, including myself, who had a parent 
uh, in my case, it was my father, wherein the only thing you have in common with that person are movies. It may be one of the only things you can share or have to talk about. And then it is a touchstone that everybody knows. You know, you've said this too, Stuart, like if you make a movie that people can see, they're like, everybody can see it. They're like, oh my God, I've seen your movie. That's amazing. And that is a, an exciting way to, you know, share your own journey with, with others, with the world. It can be meaningful. Yeah. I really enjoyed that about being in the movie business that it's uh, something, you, you know, everybody is interested in and, it's uh, it's so fun to share that with people. And, and with it, your mom, right? You were sharing yeah, stuff with your mom. Yeah. And that was so great. I would call her almost every day and tell her about the meetings that I had and the people that I met and the celebrities that I got to meet. And she knew all about it. I mean, it was it, it, it's a very public business. So that's it, that makes it kind of different than almost anything else. That's the coolest. I uh, want to say that if, you, if, you, if the audience hasn't determined by now, you are one of the most articulate people I've ever known, and you are an excellent teacher. So the pedagogy of the of this course is something very special. So, you know, there's a lot of courses out there on screenwriting. There's a lot of books. I've probably read most of them and taken a lot of courses. I, I personally went to American Film Institute for the one-year graduate program, and I know a lot of graduates from other film schools, the best in the world. London Film School, NYU, AFI, of course, USC. There's a lot that's missing from those curriculums. And that's something we should just talk about a little bit. Uh, when you graduate, especially with uh, BFAs and screenwriting and um, film majors, what do they need to know? What would you tell your younger self, for example, when you were starting out? I think I would tell my younger self to go to film school. <laughs> <laughs> I was invited by a professor actually when I was uh, in, I was actually just a junior in college and he was leaving uh, the university I was at to go to run the film program at UC Santa Cruz. And he's like, you should come be in my film program and like study with me. And I just, I laughed. I was like, there's no way that my family is going to get behind me watching movies and getting a degree in that. Like, there's no way I just had no idea, but I got interested in theater around that time. So, um, you know, my journey took a different path and I ended up starring in a magic show, directing the magic show, which ended up becoming California's largest touring magic show, <laughs> the magic, the magic bazaar. Um, so yeah, different paths lead to different places, but, you know, if you go to a significant film school and there are significant ones, the heavyweights, right? Like NYU, like USC, like Chapman, like UCLA, you're going to get more business training. They just focus on that a little bit more, but the reality is every single university is like added to film school and they've grabbed professors who are teaching everything from screenwriting and television and all of this stuff. And you're coming out with the chops the creative chops, even a portfolio in many cases or a directorial reel. And you'll enter the industry maybe with the, the goal of being staffed on a TV show. That's not an entry-level job unless you get really, really lucky. And then you won't be thinking, but then how do I get to the job that I want to have? And it, again, like I said earlier, it can be a very opaque industry. So you have to get really creative about getting in front of people, getting to know people and getting a job. That means that you maybe will be a writer's assistant or you'll be a PA or you can even temp and get on the lot. Uh, as our, um, I interviewed Cindy Begel and she talked about that. Um, and she was, you know, a big proponent of that. So you do have to figure out how to get a foot in a door. Of course, if you come from privilege and you have the backing 
to be able to go do the internship route, that can be tremendous. Because if you can take a year to go intern somewhere significant, that is a doorway in. And the interns often move up and they go all the way through to the highest levels of where they, wherever they're going to staff. The industry is still very ageist. It loves young people. So if you can get on that track, you know, absolutely, that's the track to be on is look for those internship opportunities. They're very competitive. Uh, and if you can get in, that can really help boost your career. But so can being at the right party. You know, and meeting the right people who go, oh, we really like you. What are you doing? Oh, you, we want you to come with us on our next thing. And then the next thing you know, like you're working because you met the right people. So it's a matter of just, you know, keep putting yourself out there and making friends and getting, you know, positioning yourself to say, here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. Um, here's a little bit about me. Here's what I, I'd love to read your work. Would you be willing to read mine and, and just put out that goodwill in the industry and you'll start to find your way through and get jobs. I mean, look, when I met Gary Shandling. I was in a clothing store. I didn't even know it was him. I just saw a man from behind and he had on the back of his neck, he had a tattoo of the Zen symbol of the Enso, which is like an incomplete circle. And I just sort of blurted out, oh my God, you have an Enso tattoo. That's so cool. And he turned around and it was Gary Shandling. And of course I recognized him from, he was on TV when I was a kid, right? And he was always breaking the fourth wall. So it always felt like he was my friend. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, I love, I pretty much didn't miss his show. So I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. It's Gary. And Gary right away just was like, no one ever has known what this tattoo is. Like, who are you? What do you do? You know, we're going to sit down and talk. What do you write? And he invited me out to dinner and, you know, within about two weeks I was working for him because we just hit it off. So you just kind of never really know where it comes from. But if you're, if you're being needy or desperate or, um, you know, a pest, nobody's going to want to work with you or hire you, uh, or, or go out to dinner with you. Right. So you've got to come from that place of, you know, how I have something to share, I have something to give genuine connections with people and also being real, um, connect with people, see if there's something there. And if there's not roll off, go on to the next, you're not going to, you don't have enough time in this life to connect with everybody, but you should keep an eye on your, an eye on the prize, right? Who do you want to connect with? Ultimately, who do you want to work for? I always keep a running list of people that I'd love to meet in the entertainment business. And, you know, the things that I admire of theirs, their projects, um, who I'd love to chat with. Um, and I'm making inroads now to talk to some of the amazing people who worked on Golden Girls, one of my all-time favorite shows ever, you know, so like stuff like that, that just whatever floats your boat, whatever makes you excited and, and happy. Um, that's the place to put your attention. Like happiness is really rare in this life. Um, fulfillment is really rare. And uh, joy is pretty rare. So as you start to focus on what you love, you know, this is the writing I love. This is the work that I love. These are the people I love. That will grow your wolf pack, your network, your career. And that was absolutely Gary Shandling's philosophy. He went in with the Larry Sanders show that he always used to say that it was a show about people who really love each other, but show business gets in the way. And that was what he explored was that element of the human experience inside the show business, um, you know, neurosis. <laughs> and he he loved his show. He loved the writing. He loved the writers. He loved everybody who was on the show and uh, his opportunities to get to interview some of the greatest legends of all time on within the framework of the show that he made a lot of friends through. And he always stayed humble. He was always really respectful of everybody he had on the show. And he'd say, I'm, you know, I'm really honored to know you. I'm really honored that you're here and I respect you. Um, 
And I think that just conveying that to others in this industry is, is just, it's really meaningful. That was a fantastic um, uh, bit of advice for almost anyone to take, uh, you know, just to, you know, mutual respect and uh, admiration goes a long way. And being able to be uh, sincere and put yourself out there constantly and keeping your eye on the prize. Kaya, you're an award-winning novelist. And I've read almost everything you've written. And I personally attest to the fact that you are an extraordinary writer. Your ability to create memorable characters and plots is excellent and compelling. How do you get that good at it? I mean, how did you craft, you know, create, how did you cultivate that craft of writing? I mean, that's what a cool question. And thank you so much for the acknowledgement. Um, like I love, I love writing. I, I say that writing is like my third lung. I'm, I'm just not as alive without it. Uh, it makes me feel happy um, and complete. And I was an ex-boyfriend who pointed that out. Like you really ought to keep writing because I like you better this way. It's <laughs> always nice. Um, well, I think I've always been writing since I was a kid, but I didn't really have like an aspiration of being a writer. My first aspiration came in like, I want to write a novel. And I did not think that I could complete a novel. I was like in my early twenties and I got, why did I bite off something so ambitious? It's crazy that I was like, I'm going to write about the burning of the great library of Alexandria, Egypt. And you know, fifth century Hellenistic Egypt, which is, you know, Greek occupied Egypt. And there was just so much to learn all the time. And I was so afraid that I wouldn't be able to finish a book that I wrote the entire thing longhand in pen in uh, five different journals. And um, there was, I mean, there was definitely drama. One of the journals got stolen um, thankfully my mom had Xeroxed it without even telling me. And she was able to send me the Xerox pages of that journal, which was, would have been, wow. you know, pages 230 through 370 of that book <laughs> that mm. I would not have had. So yeah, I wrote it longhand in pen. And by the time I actually finished it, I was like, okay, now I'm going to transcribe it. And I didn't know how to type. So I was like, I'm going to, well, how do you type? I saw <laughs> really weird typing style. I'm not a hunter pecker, but, um, I have a very strange typing style that would, you know, would have really probably helped me to have typing lessons, but I both got really fast by the time I had finished transcribing that book, getting to know these characters and their peril. There was a lot of peril in the book. And the woman Hypatia, who was running the great library of Alexandria, I was like raised on too much Disney to kill my main character. So I had to think of another character that could give me a window into the story that that wouldn't be Hypatia because she's going to die, right? As we know through history, she's brutally murdered by a Christian mob. So I thought about the first character who came to me, he came to me as clear as like, I'm seeing you now on screen. It was a character in Alizar. And I was thinking about the Gnostic gospels. And I was thinking about how we have found relics of that time in these manuscripts that have come out of clay pots that have been sunk in the desert floor in Egypt, uh, the Nag Hammadi library, for instance. And I was like, who had the prescience uh, and the foresight to know that all of the world's knowledge was going to be in danger? And I was really like visited by the spirit of this character named Alazar, who is uh, 
Vintner, uh, he's an alchemist and he's adjacent to the great library. And he starts to see that the Christians are burning the other libraries around the Mediterranean. And he knows this is next. We're going to lose the world's greatest repository of human knowledge, which would be like the loss of the entire internet overnight. Uh, these incredible uh, manuscripts, you know, we lost a lot. We, we lost some of the ancient Greek play, plays and poets, um, a lot of math, early mathematics and Scholars have said that had we actually had the library stood the um, like the information age and the technological revolutions would have come a thousand years earlier, because even as early as 300 BC, they the scientists in the great library already knew we we're living on a sphere. The earth is round. They calculated the circumference of the earth. They pretty much knew we're living in a heliocentric uh, solar system. These things were discovered. And. Um, and they were really lost. Uh, they were really, really lost after the fifth century. And I just started really like almost in a Star Wars way, caring about the resistance of who are the few um, who are fighting to preserve their way of life and the library and each other, uh, because there was a lot of religious zealotry at the time. And, you know, any any religion other than Christianity was deemed punishable by death within the entire Roman Empire. So this is a terrifying time uh, to be like an earth religion, earth worshiper, even Roman, uh, a lot of the Greek religions, Egyptian. So there was like this sense of, well, what will we be losing in the fabric of the world? And who are those people? So exploring Hannah, um, who's trafficked into slavery in the city and looking for her freedom and, uh, and the others. So yeah, I spent 10 years writing that book because I just didn't know how to write a book. So I just stayed with it. And I mean, the great challenge for me, probably for other writers too, is like, when do you actually stop writing? Because you're always getting better. I asked Tom Robbins, who is one of my mentors who wrote Even Cowgirls Get the Blues and Jitterbug Perfume. Cowgirls got made into a film um, that Gus Van Zandt did. And I asked Tom, you know, do you ever go back and read your books? Because he's so funny and his, he's so witty. And he said, oh my God, like never. And uh, I said, why? And he doesn't even read at book signings, his earlier work, he only reads, you know, the current book. And he said, because I'll just pick up a pen and start editing the hell out of it. So at some point you do have to just abandon the work. And I'm really bad at that. And I'm trying to get better at it now, but it does seem like everything I write takes 10 years. So yeah, I'm trying to speed up that timeline by about nine years. <laughs> I just want to say that <laughs> possible the characters in your books and screenplays, by the way, I feel like they're real people. Like I still go, Oh, that's not a real person. That's someone Kaya invented. And that's really, uh, to me, one of the most remarkable things, particularly about your talent, is that you can invent, create out of thin air such tangible characters and plots. Oh, that's really um, sweet. Thank you so much. I mean, on the screenwriting side, I'm inspired by director, writer, Hal Ashby. You know, I think he's the, the end all be all. I was like the greatest compliment I've ever been paid was I told Mike Metavoy, we we're talking about Hal Ashby for some reason. I said, I love Hal Ashby. And he goes, Hal Ashby would have loved you. <laughs> that was a great compliment. We've talked about this a lot that, you know, even though, you know, you spent 10 years on your uh, award-winning novel written in the ashes which everyone needs to immediately go out and uh download it's a collector's item now the hardbacks are for sale on amazon for like a thousand dollars bizarre i don't see any of that but you know i'm proud of it just the same so uh, it's it's really a wonderful uh, accomplishment that book um screenplays sometimes have you know 
lifespans of decades before they're they come to fruition and they go oh, through a lot of uh, reworks and rewrites and polishes and revisions and you know we went through my files recently and you know there's hundreds of pages of memos and notes and writers lists and revisions on some of these works before they're made well uh, case in point is the voyage of the demeter i was just thinking of that as you were right? talking about it yeah 20 years right over 20 years that's mike metavoy's latest film in theaters near you soon <laughs> i know it's not great it's it's just phenomenal when you love something to stay with it sometimes you have to midwife it for a really long time i've got like three or four books that i've written that I haven't even published yet, you know, between uh, book agents right now and also redefining my brand and, you know, trying to figure out what I publish under my real name and what I publish under my nom de plume because Written in the Ashes uh, was published under my nom de plume, Kay Hall and Van Zant. And there are some things that I need to publish under that nom de plume that I, I don't want to interfere with the other brand that I'm building. So when you're as complex as me, it's, you know, when I die, my kid's going to have to sort it all out because I don't know if I'm going to get to it in this life. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for, for giving us that insight into your journey as a writer. I know I'd love to, uh, love to continue to serve you. If you're, if you're looking for teaching, you're looking for guidance, you're looking for your wolf pack, you know, come find me. Um, I'm pretty easy to reach on, on Twitter. I'm at this is Kaya also. Um, and you can pretty much find me that way. My email is Kaya at KayaAlexander.com. You can always reach out. You know, I pretty much respond to everything personally and, and building the school. I just founded this company this year. So it's new and it's an exciting path. I hope to do it the rest of my life. Thank you, Kaya. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for editing our podcast and producing it. You've been on such an epic job and, and we're all so grateful. Thanks for taking your time today to uh, to turn the tables around. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks, Kaya, for telling us about your journey as a writer and getting some insight into you. If people want to engage with you further and enroll in the Entertainment Business School, what do they do? Um, thanks. Well, I'm, I'm pretty easy to reach. I'm at this is Kaya on Twitter. My name is K-A-I-A. I can be reached via email, Kaya at KayaAlexander.com. And if you want to apply for the Entertainment Business School, we have uh, it's limited class size. So if the portal is open, feel free to apply. And that's entertainmentbusinessschool.com. I, I look forward to supporting your journey. Thanks, Kaya. Thank you so much for your time today, Stuart, and for being an awesome podcast producer extraordinaire. You're so welcome. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe, like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin can be found on Twitter for your questions and comments. Kaya at this is Kaya, T H I S I S K A I A, and Sylvia at R Writer. That's R W R I T E U R. Get career training and a free ebook, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you. <laughs>